0: Sitting here with uh, producer Don Hahn from uh, Disney, uh, you may know him from, uh, or you may not know him from movies like. But you, if you watched any of those making of movie, movies, or uh, you, you, you know him, and he uh, worked on uh, The Lion King, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and so on. So, um, thank you for uh, setting aside some time. It's
1: a pleasure. Great to be here.
0: Um, Could you start off by giving us a short recap of uh, how you got into animation
1: in general? Yeah, it wasn't a a normal way. I was a musician in um, college, and so I studied music and percussion and was kind of headed down that path. But I also enjoyed drawing and and was uh, an art minor. And I got a summer job at Disney just back in 1976. And at the time, a lot of the kind of legends of animation were still there, like Frank Thomas. And Ollie Johnston and Milk Call. And so the people that um, at the time I didn't really know, but it, you know, it turned out they were just the, the most amazing talents and generous talents. And so I got really seduced by the animation process and decided to stay. And, um, and I animated for a while. Uh, knew pretty, on that pretty early on that I wasn't going to be Glenn Keane or Milk Call. Uh, so <laughs> eventually got into... Was
0: this the Pete's Dragon thing? Or... It was.
1: It was exactly that. I worked with Don Bluth on Pete's Dragon, Yeah. And learned a lot. I mean, I was so green. I was 20 years old and just learned everything at that place. So I I pretty much grew up at at the studio and eventually got into producing uh, during Who Framed Roger Rabbit. How did that happen? Well, I was production managing before that. I was a production manager on Fox and the Hound and uh, um, The Black Cauldron. And... I was one of the only guys around who had experience on live action animation combination movies. Cause I had worked on Pete's dragon. And so when Spielberg and Bob Zemeckis came around and they were putting together the unit to make Roger Rabbit, um, I, I got drafted to, uh, you know, start working on that cause I knew some of the processes. And, uh, that was a real amazing kind of life changer for me because I moved to London for two years and worked with Richard Williams and, um, really got a chance to work with some amazing filmmakers, you know, between Zemeckis and uh, and Dick Williams was a real treat Do you think Zemeckis is
0: sort of on the same path now as he was then? When you consider uh, Roger Rabbit compared to the movies he's doing today
1: Well I don't think any of us are on the same path we are now that we were then <laughs> It
0: seems like he sort of picked up that thing again after a few years of doing regular movies, and now he's...
1: Yeah, he's a very technical filmmaker. He enjoys technology. And all of his work right now is very technical, all of his performance capture work. And uh, he loves that. He loves being able to work with with actors in that way and work with the technology. Because you don't have to sit out on a movie set at 2 o'clock in the morning when it's raining. You, You know, it's all there in your control. And the camera's completely in your control all the time. So for a director, you know, you're seeing more and more live-action directors get drawn to animation because of that. You're seeing Spielberg and, and uh, Peter Jackson and all these people getting into uh, animation and performance capture because of the control. Yeah. And how is it like working with uh, Dick Williams? I like Dick Williams a lot. He's a, I, I wouldn't say he's difficult to work with. He's Intense? A, <laughs> very intense, very focused, very uh, eccentric at times. But I think in the end we got along great. And uh, you know, it was hard for him sometimes. He's a perfectionist. He works very, very hard on every frame of every movie. Um, but he did some amazing work on Roger Rabbit. And he, he understood that he was really Bob Zemeckis' set of hands, that that's what his job was. He was there to draw for Bob Zemeckis and bring a lot to it. But uh, he understood that unlike you know, his personal work, his commercials, or The Thief and the Cobbler, he, where it was his personal painting. And, and that's his you know, expression, like Picasso or something. And so it was a very different job for him. And I, I really enjoyed working with him, as difficult as it was. I can't, I'm not saying it was easy. It wasn't easy at all. But it was um, thrilling you know, to be able to be in the same room with him. Did he bring the talent? or It was a combination. He closed down his studio in Soho Square that he had had for many years doing uh, commercial work. And he brought some of his talent along, like Russell Hall and Simon Wells and Roy Nesbitt and some of the real stars of Richard Williams' studio. And then we brought uh, several people from the U.S., uh, Andreas Deja, Phil Nibling, Dave Spafford. you oh, worked on that, too. Yeah, Andreas came over. And so it was a real combination of people from Disney, many of which had European backgrounds, and then people from Richard Williams' studio. And then we recruited a lot of people from uh, the UK, from Canada, from uh, the European Union to come up and work on it. So it's a real new studio. Very young studio. Great. And then you moved back to the States. and you're... I did. I moved back and in, in, uh, worked on Beauty and the Beast, which was uh, you know, three or four years of uh, torment, trying to get that thing going. Uh, and uh, I had a great time. I think the, the key thing about Beauty and the Beast was Howard Ashman being able to work with Howard Ashman and Alan Menken on the songs because Howard was more than a songwriter. He was a um, producer, he was a director, he was a coach, and he came in from the blue, from the outside, from theater and taught us a lot. Things that I still am working off today, you know, just amazing... Uh, you know things about animation,
0: and he's fairly unknown out of the studio. If you're not really, really interested in animation, you wouldn't know who he is. Yeah, and you you spend so much time in your movie talking about him, so.
1: And, and that's why I felt really an obligation to talk about him because nobody really knows who he is. You may have seen him on a DVD for Little Mermaid or something. Yeah. But I wanted to put across in my movie that he was much more than just a lyricist, and. Um, so the whole second act of Waking Sleeping Beauty is devoted to Howard, and, and rightly so. I could have made a whole movie about Howard, actually, uh, very easily. So, yeah, when I started making Waking Sleeping Beauty a couple years ago, I, I knew it was a really special time at the studio, and so that was important, but also um, trying to capture some of the personalities that nobody knows. And there's a lot of them. You know, I, I think you know of them. You may know a little bit about uh, Ron Clements and John Musker or Andrea Stasia or Glenn Keane, but for the general public... i want to make this movie for the general public you want to spend some more time with these characters and really see what they did yeah
0: i just read um or i'm reading the james b stewart book uh, disney wars yeah yeah and uh it's sort of the same story it's all from more of a different
1: perspective business perspective yeah and yeah and i felt like part of the reason and he's in there yeah definitely definitely I felt, and so did uh, a guy named Peter Schneider produced this movie with me, and Peter ran animation during that era. He's caricatured brutally in the movie. Uh, And we felt like Disney Wars got it wrong. It was a very outside, uh, limited perspective on what went on. And we thought, well, let's let's do an inside look so we can bring people and have them sit at the tables we were at and, and be there in the rooms that we were at. And so that's when I sat around trying to find all this archival footage, and whether it was news footage from 60 Minutes or or illegally shot footage that John Lasseter was shooting or whatever. We want to find all these pieces and tell the story with those pieces because then you'd be there. You, there'd be no question about what went on. You'd be in the room. Yes. And that was the idea about making the f- film uh, in the first place plus making it with archival footage. Yes. Uh, and it was a risk because... We didn't know if we had every piece of the story, but in the end, we did. We found enough to cover it all.
0: Yeah, but it's, it seems like you um, chose a more of a positive angle on the whole thing because it's, it's it's it is about making movies,
1: and yeah. it's it's not really it's just a, it's not just business. So uh. exactly, and that's why I chose that angle. It's a little bit, I suppose, who I am and what I saw in the film, but I also don't feel like people. It's not like the war in Afghanistan. You know, we were making cartoons. And yes, there's stresses and, and heads-butting and egos, but that exists in every business. And uh, so I want to come absolutely talk about that as honestly as I could, but also show the, the joy and the, the kind of uh, fun of making the movie and the process of putting a movie together like that.
0: Who came up with the idea of uh, making a documentary about the, the ups and downs of the Disney Corporation?
1: And, and why now? Good question. Uh, initially, Peter Schneider uh, brought the idea to me. We had coffee one day, and he said, "What? A, 20 years have gone by. Maybe it's time to tell our story. And I was really skeptical. And we we actually went looking for other directors. And I thought, "It's first of all, you can't tell it um, unless you have the cooperation of all the people. So you have to interview Roy Disney. You have to interview Jeffrey Katzenberg, Michael Eisner. How are you going to get these people? You have to get the cooperation of... Uh, Howard Ashman's estate and Alan how are you going to get these people and uh, a lot of paperwork a lot of paperwork and and a lot of you had to get all the clips Disney had to approve it because uh, you know people say well why did you involve Disney because there wouldn't be a movie without being able to show clips from Aladdin and Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast it's a different thing with the book yeah yeah absolutely so you want to be able to show all that and we had an amazing executive at the studio at the time he's gone now but uh, named Dick Cook And he had been at the studio for 35 years. He understood that legacy is a big part of uh, any organization, but especially Disney. And so he actually called up uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, initially and asked him to be involved. And then I went and visited Jeffrey and Michael and Roy. And they were incredibly generous. And I think to your other question about why now is um, enough time had passed where the stories were still fresh in everyone's mind but not um, not so contentious that lawsuits were still going on. <laughs> uh, and had we waited any longer, Roy eventually... Roy passed away last year. He was sick with cancer. We were worried that we would lose him. We were worried that people would start forgetting the stories. Uh, and we thought that we have this moment of a year or two here where we can get the stories while they're fresh in everyone's mind, find the footage, and have the cooperation of... Um, you know the executives to be able to tell the story. So that was the that was the main reason why now and why yeah. this story.
0: Let's uh, just touch
1: on uh, on Roy
0: Disney's uh, yeah. work and his legacy and how was it like uh, knowing that you actually might lose him now that he was gonna sort of leave the studio.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was odd because um, there's always been a Disney. At Disney Studios, whether it was uh, Waltz or Roy Senior or Roy E. Disney, and um, now there isn't anymore. For the first time in the last, you know, six months here, there's nobody named Disney at the studio. So that's a little odd. He was um, a really interesting man, very soft-spoken, uh, very articulate in writing. He would always give us the best story notes in writing two days after the movie he had screened somewhere. Um, And most of all, he was a a defense when egos got out of control or when you felt like maybe people were pushing too hard or whatever, Roy he was a a godfather to us. He was somebody we could go to and say, we feel like this is getting out of check or out of balance. And he would always be a defender. It wasn't that he was there every day, because he wasn't. Uh, he, He had a full life. He enjoyed sailing. He enjoyed business and a number of things. But we knew he was at the other end of the phone. And uh, and I think ultimately that's why animation survived because Jeffrey and Michael came in, didn't have any expertise in animation, and really could care less if it survived. They knew that the studio had to prosper based on the movies, the live-action movies in the parks. And, uh, and Roy said, well, animation is the centerpiece of this company. Let's try to return it to that time when it was the centerpiece of the company. And eventually he's the one that really seduced... Uh, Jeffrey Casenberg into that. Jeffrey became so taken with animation over that 10 years. And you see in the movie. At the beginning, he's like, oh, yeah, well, give me their building and get them, you know, send them off to a warehouse somewhere. And by the end of it, he's making this impassioned speech about how he loves everybody and how they are. And he meant it. I mean, I filmed that. Uh, and he had no notes. He didn't prepare. He came out of his office and he sat down where you are. And I said, you ready? He said, yeah. And he gave that speech without hesitation. He just... It came out from the heart. Uh, so Jeffrey's a remarkable guy, and of course he's gone on to produce all you know so many movies at DreamWorks. So I, that's one of the reasons. The other reason we want to tell the story is that it was Shakespearean. In people died, and there were father-son fights, and there were dynamics and egos and uh, fiefdoms and you know there was all this dynamics going on, and it was a very Shakespearean story to us. Ooh. They,
0: it's kind of strange because they have uh, this sort of bad reputation for being businessmen and, and as you said that, that they had to be uh, Roy, Roy Disney really had to push the animation yeah. department and yeah. everything but um, still you produce so many great movies during those years and when they left or Eisner didn't leave quite yet but uh, Jeffrey, did, Jeffrey yeah. did and suddenly it went sort of downhill with uh, yeah
1: it's Ten years after my movie finishes, they, sh- they closed the hand-drawn animation division, so it- the movie takes place in ten years, going from nothing up to Lion King, and then in ten years it was gone, which I was so sad I couldn't put it in the movie, it was like shocking. Um, so there was something to be said about that time. Good movies were made after that, Lilo & Stitch, Tarzan, some good movies were made but there was a loss of energy. It's very much like a sports team. You know, you have a winning season, and somehow people take their eye off the ball, and people drift away, and other... You know, it's very hard to sustain for more than 10 years that kind of success.
0: There are some great movies in there. Yeah. In between.
1: Great movies. I mean, and I think... You know, *Hunchback* was a movie I worked on. I'm really proud of. I think the score and the breadth of it. I thought *The Emperor's New Groove* was a great movie. Yeah, *Emperor's New Groove*. It everybody when it came out was kind of scratching their heads, but it's become this big cult movie. People absolutely adore that movie.
0: Yeah. So we we gave it a really good review on our side. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Yeah. So it's not like it crashed and burned overnight. Great movies happen, like you said. Uh, It just different dynamics happened and and frankly Pixar uh, became extremely fashionable computer graphics became extremely exciting yeah
0: a lot of the great people from from the Disney studio went on to do stuff at Pixar right
1: yeah Uh, a lot of them did Joe Rampton a fair amount of the animators uh, ended up going there because it was the new exciting place to be And uh, so, yeah, it became a very exciting place to go. Do
0: you think you'll ever tell the story after 1994? Is there anything there for you to tell, or is that Um, someone else's job?
1: I don't know. I I don't think I will, but um, partially because it doesn't seem as cohesive as this 10 years of 84 to 94. And the reason is... um, it was very dynamic, there were lawsuits, the studio sued Jeffrey uh, and vice versa. Michael Ovitz came in, good movies were made, but the company became very big. All of a sudden ABC was purchased and it was a boom time. At the same time, Michael um, you know, went through a variety of changes and it was just a very, very different time that did not center around animation. The thing about 84 to 94 is it's a story about animation. And the, co- and the executives were fighting over animation. When you get into 94 to 2004, or even today, <clears throat> the company's huge, ESPN and, and ABC and the hotels and everything else, so animation is an important component of it, but nobody's fighting over it. It's, it's a piece of the business, a strong piece of the business, yeah. thankfully.
0: I can't remember who said this, but there was someone in the movie that said that, um, maybe it was actually Eisner who said that, that uh, we have to make movies like this. Yeah. Because it's our it, legacy. It's it's what's driving all the other things.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Eisner and, and uh, Ray Disney says it in the movie too. It's yeah. where the parks and the attractions and the products come from. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't changed. I mean, that hasn't changed because if you look at Tron coming up this year or Alice in Wonderland, those movies, if they're successful, drive a tremendous amount of uh, business of all kinds to the company. So, so what are you working on right now? that? Um, I I just finished Oceans, which is a Disney nature documentary. And now I'm working on Frankenweenie, uh, yeah. the stop motion movie with Tim Burton. Uh, which we're doing in London and is starting to shoot right now. Do so. you
0: aspire to do any more directing?
1: Like yeah, then? I would love to if the right idea came came along. I, I guess made... it's
0: not directing in the, the uh, traditional sense of the word because you're actually not, there's no actors. and.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, and I made my career as a producer, but this is a story that was really close to me and I felt like I could tell it. Yeah. And I think it's a lot, like when you set off to write a novel, you, you, know, you, just, you write what you know and this is a... a topic i knew better than anyone and and like i said we looked for directors and i ended up in our interviews just telling them what to do and saying well this is we should look for film cloture and and we ended up just uh doing it myself so i would love to do more of that and direct more documentaries uh you know very much so yeah and did you do do the interviews with all the Katzenberg and learn i did we had a great collaborator though a gentleman named patrick pacheco who is a writer for the New York Times. uh, And we hired him as a writer to be able to work with us because I felt like I was too close to the story because since I was in the middle of the story myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what Patrick did was do background interviews with 50 or so of the players, and he would tell us back what he thought the story was. I had an opinion in my mind what the story was, but he would say, well, you know, clearly the dynamic is uh, that... Roy thinks Jeffrey's taking too much credit because Roy grew up in a household where credit was an issue because Walt Disney took a lot of credit from Roy Sr. so there's, you know, he would help point out these dynamics and I knew they were there but he would very, he would crystallize them for me and then I could sit down with Jeffrey or Michael and they were very generous Jeffrey gave us probably two or three hours of interviews in the end and I wish you could listen to them all because they're very honest and very candid about that time very reflective, so um but I had the preparation that uh, we did beforehand, the background interviews, So that way I could, on the microphone, I could ask Jeffrey, well, when the new building was announced and you knew nothing about it, how did you feel? And, and then he, he could open up and say, I was devastated. I thought this was insane. What are these guys trying to do to me? And it was very dramatic. And it was thrilling to sit there with these guys and have them open up and tell the stories that, that honestly. Yeah. I really enjoyed that.
0: Um... After the screening yesterday. Uh, great screening, by the way. I really enjoyed the movie.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Um, had you seen it before that? Or?
0: No, no, no. Great. Yeah, I was so happy. The reaction was stunning. Yeah, people were standing, standing ovation. I know. Really great. It was great. It was I was so happy. I think happy. people really enjoyed it. And I spoke to other people, and it was just uh, it was just a real treat, for the whole movie. Mm. I loved it. Thank you. Um, but uh, Before the movie, you said you had two rules. Mm-hmm. That really made this movie a, a sort of. It's a documentary, and it's it makes it a different kind of documentary than what you're used to seeing.
1: Yeah, the, really, it was. It happened fairly early. I I didn't want to see any old guys reminiscing. You see that on DVD bonus material all the time. Just somebody sitting in a chair, talking about how great we were, <laughs> and weren't we talented? And didn't we have hard times together? Yeah. And I thought that was about the most boring thing you could do. And then the other thing was to... Especially since you're still at the company. Yeah, exactly. And and I'm not... I don't look as good as I did back then. You know, <laughs> So I wanted to put you in the room. And the, then the second part that kind of goes with that is I wanted to use all archival footage. Yeah. And so we, <clears throat> we hired a researcher to go out and find footage <clears throat> for us to try to see if we could do that. And it became apparent that we could. There was lots. Excuse me there was a lot of footage most of it illegally shot uh and and a lot of news accounts so I use uh home movies and then I'll use something from a news program and then home movies and kind of checkerboard like that so that there's always a validation from the outside it's not just my story but here's someone from the outside saying the same thing and um, that hopefully helps to legitimize the story and uh I In many ways, this is a sequel to a really fine documentary that Leslie Iwerks did uh, called The Pixar Story. Yeah, I've seen it. Prequel. And I love Leslie. I think she's a really gifted filmmaker. But I thought that documentary aired a little too much on Talking Heads. And uh, it almost felt promotional to me. And I did not want or need a promotional piece about Don Hahn or Disney. We, We don't need it there's no reason to make the film if it's going to be promotional. Yeah. But Pixar is still young, so... They're still very young, and, and and it's a wonderful movie. I have nothing against it. This is a 20-year-old story, and it was time to be um, honest and candid, and because of that, it's intriguing, you know, and, and you hear things you haven't heard before, and you see things you haven't seen before, and so that idea of saying, let's tell the audience something they can't find out on a DVD bonus material. Let's show them stuff that we never show them, like Howard Ashman coaching Jody Benson at the microphone and singing into her ear. He's literally singing her performance. And you see what a control freak he was. And so let's show those things in a way that the audience will be just taken aback by the candor of the piece and hopefully walk away with how Great! These people, like Howard Ashman and Jeffrey, and were, and what a special time this was.
0: It really felt like you were on the inside.
1: Yeah, that's thank you. I, I, that's exactly what I want. I want to make you feel like I'm at the table, and even though it's grainy at times and shaky and you know bad quality, I that, thought that makes it more
0: authentic. It, it makes it more authentic.
1: authentic. Yeah, and I thought if, if people are into the story, they won't care.
0: So. Um, was it, was it a bit scary to uh, go on to this uh, adventure of trying to make a movie that is that honest and, and getting approvals from... How, how did the bo- board at Disney feel about the movie? Have they seen it and did they have to do everything? And...
1: They, not the board. I, the other thing I wanted to do when we made the movie is I didn't want to stab anybody in the back. Want to stab him in the chest. so if we're gonna <laughs> if we're gonna uh, say something about you, I wanted to play it for you beforehand. Uh, I played it for Bob Iger, who's the head of Disney right now, and he was remarkably supportive, I think because the movie shows he wasn't mentioned. yeah, he wasn't there during that era, and he wasn't no. mentioned yet, <laughs> but I think he felt like it it showed uh, artists struggling to make a product, and that's what Disney's all about. Yeah. so between, Dick Cook and Bob Iger, that's, that was my... I wanted to make sure they were okay with what we were putting out. And they were... We didn't make one change for them, not one. Mm. Um, Did they ask for changes? No. No? No. And I don't know why to this day. I th- either they thought... Either they felt like, uh, you know, this would be a small movie. But I think largely they felt like it was a, a an honest telling of the story. And... Really, all all the facts in the story are available on Wikipedia. There's, you know, there's nothing too earth-shaking. Yeah.
0: It doesn't seem like you're attacking
1: one particular person. No. In movie. it feels like you're. I didn't want to. I want to attack them all. I, I, yeah, exactly. I, I, and, and celebrate them all. You know. Yeah. Uh, it's I, a delicate balance. It is. I mean, some of the toughest shots I take it people are Howard Ashman. You know, you see him roasting one of the directors, it, and you talk about his temper and so on one hand i'm saying here's a guy who's impossible to work with and on the other hand we loved him like a brother um on one hand peter schneider was really difficult to work with and we show his temper on the other hand animation wouldn't be where it is without him so i really want to look at all those personalities and explore them a little bit because i really felt like if you took one of those out if you took roy disney out or if you took jeffrey out it wouldn't be the same and um I always say it was a movie about ten blind men describe an elephant, you know, where you get everyone's point of view. It's still an elephant that they're describing, but each one makes it sound different. You know, Some of the artists take a point of view about how hard it was and what the physical toll was. and Some executives talk about the financial returns. And so by listening to everybody around the table and by putting you at the table, you get a real sense of what went on. And then I really wanted you as an audience to make the conclusions. I didn't want to come out and say... Jeffrey was this. Glenn Keane was that. I wanted you as an audience to walk away and say, "Oh, I, I understand more than when I walked in." Yeah. It was probably a good idea to go straight to the source and ask Jeffrey and
0: Michael and we everyone for interviews because yeah. yeah, they were actually telling their story from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, just uh, some nerdy questions. Um, <laughs> Yay! Uh, do you think you're going to do more of those animated shorts, like the Goofy
1: short? and... Or... Yeah, we still are. We showed one last night with um, Princess and the Frog called TikTok Tale that we just finished literally before. I don't even think John Lasseter's seen it. It got finished before they got on the plane to come over here. So, yes, I, the shorts are so great for developing new talent. And Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and J- John Lasseter more than anybody believes in them, and he's right because it's a way for very little money to give a try to some new technology and some new talent And see what happens. And there's no money in them necessarily. But they are a training camp for talent of the future. So if it's baseball, that's like the training club. And you're bringing people up for the future. So yeah, I think we'll always be making shorts of some sort. Do
0: you know much about the history of shorts and how it sort of evolved into being something that wasn't economically viable anymore?
1: I don't know a lot about it. I mean, it was viable when it was a piece of entertainment that played along with newsreels and, you know, multiple features. When you had a thousand people going to the theater every night to see you know two movies, a newsreel and a cartoon, yeah. those cartoon characters like Mickey and Bugs Bunny became movie, movie stars yeah. in every way. And uh, I think probably television changed that or started to in the 50s because now all the... Too many channels. Too many channels and all the, all the shorts that were made for theatricals by Warners and MGM are now on television every day. And, and if you're a theater owner, you don't want to add five or ten minutes of extra shorts to your program. You want to show your movie and get everybody out of your theater so you can show your movie again. Uh, there's no money in shorts at the box office.
0: But yeah, I think it's just great how um, both Pixar and older like, of the studios, studios they, they do this thing where they, they, it's a package. You, you show the, I, yeah, I the short great. before the movie. And it's such a great part of the experience. I'm getting yeah. to see the new short. It's sort of yeah, like a bonus.
1: And I think that's what the thinking is. It's, a, it's over-delivering for the audience. The audience knows that they paid a ticket to come and see Toy Story 3. But they're going to get a short along with it, whether they expected it or not. And so it exceeds your expectations. And I think especially in animation, we all have an appreciation of, uh, you know, of that.
0: Uh, how about features? Uh, 2D features, are they coming? Are there any of them in production? or
1: None in production, but I think uh, Ron Clements and John Musker have several ideas that they've pitched to John that, they're, that John's interested in that I think they'll start developing next year, or this year, I should say. So, um, yeah. Yeah. After seeing *The Illusionist* and uh, *Secret of Kells*, I think there's such great work to be done in 2D animation that
0: they you still people... have
1: the biggest talents. Yeah, the biggest talents. It's just to scratch the surface. You know, there's really not uh, anything that you can't do in that medium, and I think we've only scratched the surface with it. So, yeah, I hope so. I, you know, I particular, I just love it myself. I just think it's. Uh, a lot of great work to be done yet in in 2d
0: um i was just thinking about the the glenn keen movie that's coming out uh what's it called now tangled? tangled yeah, yeah. it yeah. used to be called rapunzel um, rapunzel right yeah. now it's just tangled yeah okay um when's that coming out and do you know sort of the story because everyone has their theories on what happened there and why he's not in charge anymore and-
1: I honestly know what I've read in the paper because I'm not that close to that movie, so I, you know, it's pres- done in France, or no, no, it's done in, in the states in Los Angeles. It is done. Okay, yeah, very much so. There, Glenn, doesn't he
0: live there uh, in well, France still, or you don't know? No, no, they don't. He doesn't.
1: They don't. We had an amazing studio there for many years that worked on Hunchback and all those Tarzan. And Glenn lived over here for a long time, but no, he. Um, the movie's finishing up. It comes out at Thanksgiving time in November of this year in the States. And um, so, you know, that, that's what's coming along. The name change is literally what I've read in the paper, that they're trying to balance it and make it more of a movie that kids will come to, whether they're a boy or a girl, and not, not marginalize it too much as a princess movie. Because uh, what was great about Princess and the Frog is, if you love princesses, you were there in the front row what's not so great about it is if you didn't care for princesses or if you were a little boy, you didn't go. And so I think that was the rationale behind changing it.
0: So, um, uh, how about you? Uh, are you going to mo- do more of those out-of-the-box projects, like your Walt Stanchfield uh, lecture series and your books?
1: Yeah, yeah I, the Walt Stanchfield thing was thrilling for me because I had worked with them really closely and it was literally lost material. It was sitting in our drawers and Nobody ever put it together, and it was going to get lost. And I called up his wife, and I said, why don't we just try to pull together everything we can find, because he wrote for 20 years. And uh, I thought it would be 250 pages. It was 800 pages when we were done. was insane. And um, Is it two or three volumes? It's two volumes. Two volumes. 400 pages a piece. And I found a publisher that was nutty enough to uh, publish it, Focal Press. And uh, Have you sold any of those books? <laughs> You would be shocked. They have sold. I bought my copies,
0: but I, I I'm not sure if there's a market for something like, like a that. real
1: a, a good selling animation book like my other like Animation Alchemy you know like a that you might sell to kids to learn yeah. how animation yeah. goes that might sell ten thousand copies. We've sold well over fifteen thousand copies of both volumes of the Stanfield book. It's in its second printing. We've got orders from India and China. And it's this huge thing, because it's like the Bible. There's, there's so much information there. So it's become really desirable, and I couldn't be happier, because all the money goes to Walt's widow. And you know, it, it's, it's just great information. So yeah, I want to do more. I, uh, I have a couple that I'm working on now to try to pull together some other lecture notes. There's a lot of that stuff at Disney, especially, that's been sitting in the archives for decades. And nobody knows it's there. And I think it's fun to pull it out and share it with people. Yeah, it's, it's great, for especially for prof- professionals. For professionals, and it's this fundamental kind of thing where you can get... You know, Richard Williams did this, too, with his writings. It's all these fundamentals of animation. So if you're a beginner, you can do that. But Stansfield's stuff is more sophisticated. You can really get into uh, thinking like an artist and, and living an artist lifestyle and observing. And he's much more philosophical about his approach. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to bouncing ball tests and that kind of thing. That's there isn't what
0: that I, much acting in the original I haven't
1: read the extended version that just came out.
0: But uh, yeah, but it's a great way to start out, and it I is. think I learned most of my stuff from that book.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And
0: um, I'm an animator, so yeah, great. But I, I, I bought the Stanfield books, and I, I I sort of browsed through them, and I read a few chapters here and there, but I I wasn't sure if I was. I had to start uh, drawing, or because uh, I'm a 3D animator,
1: so um, I do draw once in a while, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> well, I think it works for anybody. You know, it, it's more for meant for people for drawing and draftsmanship, but I think there's a lot of principles in there about, you know, silhouette and pose and, and composition that anybody can use. Um,
0: And you worked closely on that book, or did you just put your name on it and have someone
1: else? Oh, I worked so closely on it. No, I didn't put my (laughs) name on it. I did it, uh, because Walt passed away back in the year 2000. And so... uh, I never know,
0: because I saw there was some some other name on there. Uh, Yeah.
1: I don't know her name. name. Yeah. um, I, I, I had people working with me, obviously, but I really wanted to go through the material. And I early in my career i was also in charge of the training program at disney so that's why i know walt that well and worked close with him so i wanted to make sure his writings were preserved and um so yeah i went through every page and i did have to edit places and take drawings out just to make it fit in that 800 pages so he was very prolific but uh no i definitely worked on that book proudly happily so cool so
0: uh, I think we have to end. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. It's a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, we at the ACP uh, podcast wish to wish you the best with your fantastic movie. Thank you. And uh, I hope to see you again at Annecy in the future years. Same here. Uh, yeah. Have a great uh, week.
1: You too. Go see movies.
0: Yeah, I will. So should you. Yes.